Amen. So guys, I, I, I love the church. I love the body of Christ. Genuinely, fully, just really love the church. It's, it's obviously, it would be difficult to do what I do if that wasn't the case. Not only do we need other believers in our life, not only is the way that the gospel uh, brings us together as believers into a community such a beautiful thing, a beautiful truth for us to ponder on, but being in covenant community with other believers is critical to our faith and our growth in Christ. I believe that's what the, the Bible says. Now, I say all that and you might think to yourself, wow, Cody must have had a lot of really, really great church experiences in his life. And indeed, I have, right? I mean, I'm just sharing more about them just a minute ago. However, I don't want you to be misled in that I've also had a lot of really, really terrible experiences in churches as well. As a kid, the pastor who baptized me uh, was having an affair with his administrative assistant at the same time and shortly after left the church because he felt like he was supposed to be with her, not his wife. The church I went to in college, uh, the pastor left because so much conflict was created between his wife and a number of people in the church that, um, that, that kind of blew up there. The first church I worked at when I came on staff had just had two pastors leave because of sexual sin in their lives. As a pastor, in 15 years now that I've been a pastor, um, it's, I've been gossiped about. I've uh, had people go behind my back on different things, right? I've had people uh, lie about things. I've, I, I, one of my favorite stories, I had to take on a new ministry because the other pastor had left. And so I was just trying to fill in and kind of fill the shoes while also doing all the things I was doing. And so I had a meeting with all the volunteers to kind of like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be leading this ministry now for the foreseeable future. And so we need to talk about a few things, you know, fundamental things of, of doing, doing ministry. And I was sharing one of the policies that had been their policy at the church for a long time. And one of the ladies who was a volunteer stood up in the middle of the meeting and proceeded to yell at me for 10 minutes, literally at least 10 minutes, uh, at the top of her voice, um, making all sorts of outlandish comments, um, because she didn't like one of the policies that I was just reiterating and enforcing. Um, and, you know, so you got to deal with things like that at times. I mean, I, I could go on and on about things I've seen between people in church uh, life, um, but since we don't have hours, and since that probably wouldn't be too edifying. And since the reality is, is that if you've been in church for very long, you could probably get up here and share your stories, right? Reality is that to some degree, well, the reality is that most of us have had some kind of experience like that, and to some degree, most of us have been part of the problem 
in some of those issues. Now, thankfully at Proclaim, we've never sinned and we've never created any problems. We've never had any issues whatsoever. And especially not because of me, of course. Of course, because I've... No, you, you understand that sarcasm. Despite all of the issues that I've seen, though, despite all the issues that I've created, despite all the issues that I've been hurt by, I am adamant more than ever in my life about the necessity of the body of Christ in the life of a believer. The absolute necessity, because that's what God's Word says. Not because God's people are less likely to sin. Not, I haven't found that. I've actually found as I've been more and more involved in the church, uh, just how much a Christian can sin. Just how much believers can have conflict amongst one another. But also through those problems, I've learned that God commands us to be in community and I've learned through those that God can be trusted. So this is what we're going to see in our passage this morning. God's people, Abram and Sarai, they, uh, they're facing some real problems. And in facing those problems, they choose unbelief and sin. And it creates some more problems, Right? It makes a pretty big mess of things. And that's what we do. We have issues, we have problems that we face, and even in community, or, or maybe it's a problem we face here, and then we're just kind of living it out in community, and we don't believe God, we don't trust God, and so we sin, and it creates more problems. It creates more of a mess. And while Abram and Sarai's Issues are very specific to their situation. I think there's some general principles, even for God's people today, that we can walk away with. And so, the bottom line I want to communicate to you this morning is this. Even when God's people make sinful messes, God can be trusted. That's what I want you to walk away with. If you walk away with nothing else, this is what I want you to walk away with this morning. Even when God's people make sinful messes, God can be trusted. Trusted. And I want to consider this by looking first at how to make a mess. I mean, I don't actually want you to make a mess, but I thought that might be a provocative way of saying it, right? So how to make a mess. Then I want us to consider how God works in the mess. So let's look at how to make a mess. We can see this in verses 1 through six. Here's what happened. I want you to pay attention to the fact that there are, um, there's first a problem, and then there's a sinful solution posed, and that solution creates what? Another problem, and then there's another sinful solution proposed to that problem, okay? So problem one, God has promised offspring to his people, right? And we find out that it's been another 10 years and still no children. So Sarai suggests that since God is preventing her from having kids, even though he's promised offspring to Abram, that perhaps the way to solve that issue is for Abram to have the child with her servant instead. 
He can obtain offspring on, or she can obtain offspring for Abram on Sarai's behalf. Now, in our cultural moment, it's easy to quickly read this and think that perhaps Abram and Sarai are like sexually exploiting Hagar. Like, how could they do that to her, force her to do this? And I want us to look at this a little bit more carefully. Because that can lead you to wonder, is the Bible okay with women being treated that way? And, and if that was, you know, in a, in a quick reading, when we were just reading it now, or if you read it beforehand, if that was uh, uh, the questions that came to your mind, or if that's the, where your mind went, I, I want you to understand, grace on you, that's where my mind went when I first read it. But as I studied it more, I think there's a little bit more going on in this situation, and I want to lay that out for you. Everyone, you see, tends to start with a a modern mindset, the mindset of their moment in history, right? And then you lay that onto the story that you're reading from the ancient world. But because we started from our culture, sometimes we can draw conclusions that aren't quite accurate. Instead, what we ought to do is start with the text, what was going on then, And then from that, pull it forward into what does that mean for us today? Does that make sense? So rather than starting today and go backwards, we need to pull it from their context forwards into today. And so what I want to to say is while rape and sexual exploitation are terrible and something that the Bible does speak to, I don't think that's primarily what this passage is speaking to. And I don't think that's actually what's happening in this passage at all. Additionally, the Bible isn't telling this story uh, as a way to condone this behavior. It's not saying, well, Abram did it, so it must be okay. In fact, if you look at the story, what you find is the Bible is very clear about the consequences of what they do. The Bible presents it as a very bad thing. So, Why is this not about rape or sexual exploitation? Well, I think first we need to consider what the cultural differences are that are going on between today and then. This sounds odd to us, this whole situation that Sarai would say, well, hey, I've got a servant, Hagar, why don't you have a child with her on my behalf? But in their historical context, that would have actually been quite a reasonable thing to propose. First, whereas having children is often seen as a burden today in our culture, It was in that day, and really for the majority of human history, seen as a crowning honor to women to have children. If a woman couldn't have a child, it would have been common practice in the cultures around Abram and Sarai uh, to encourage the, the wife to find a surrogate mother to bear a child on her behalf. These surrogate mothers were typically of lower social standing and filling into this role would have elevated them tremendously. And so while it seems so odd to us, for them in that day, it would have been like, well, of course that's the solution. Well, you can't have a kid. Well, just get a surrogate mother. That's all you got to do. You got a servant right there. Now, you might think, well, if, if they would have de-emphasized childbearing, like 
we see today, then that would have solved the problem. But, but I think the Bible presents something different. The Bible presents bearing children as an honorable, God-given role to women that brings him glory and is for their benefit. That's how the Bible presents it. And that may not be popular, a popular opinion today, but you read the Bible and that's what you see. And this often happens. What's happening in this situation is a good thing, a thing that God created to be a certain way becomes what you'd call a God thing, right? It becomes an idol. And when we want a good thing so bad that we stop trusting God for it and try to get it in our own way, even if those means are sinful, we ignore the rest of God's word in order to get it. We elevate what God called a gift from him as a gift above him. Does that make sense? We elevate a good thing that God has given us above the God who gave it. That's idolatry. And so people without a God, right? People who don't, uh, in the cultures around Abram, who don't recognize God will seek to solve those problems however they can. God's people, though, are to trust God and obey him first, trusting that God will do his will and what he wants to happen will happen. So then we, as Christians, are to work within those boundaries. In this instance, Genesis 2 tells us that marriage is between one man and one woman. Abram ought to have known that. They ought to have known that and abided by it. So, what's happening in this story? Is that what's happening? Is, is this, uh, which is this? Let's go to the text and find out. What can we know from the text? We know that Hagar is an Egyptian woman who most likely is very familiar with this idea of surrogate motherhood. It probably would have been the norm for her. We see that she was a servant and bearing a child to Abram would have been an enormous boost to her social standing and her legacy as a person. On top of that, not only was she the surrogate mother, but she was actually, the text says, made Abram's wife. So that's even better for her Worse for Abram, right? Because now you've added adultery. To adultery, you've added polygamy, right? And we know, if you remember all the way back when we were reading earlier in Genesis, I think it's Genesis 6, that, that one of the, uh, the person who is most pictured as the most wicked person, pre-flood, what was the one thing that he did that hadn't been expressed before? He was the first person to have two wives. Interesting. So Abram should have known. Also, when she's dealt with harshly, when Hagar is dealt with harshly later in the passage, she's able to flee. But when this option of her becoming the surrogate mother is presented to her, she does not flee. Additionally, additionally in other texts in Genesis, when there is rape or sexual exploitation happening. The, the text is very, very clear. In Sodom, it's clear. With Dinah, it's clear. With Joseph and Potiphar's wife, it's clear. But it doesn't say that here. In fact, what we see is the product of the pregnancy in Hagar isn't that she's ashamed that this happened, isn't that she's, you know, uh, feeling abused. It's that she's 
proud. She looks with contempt on Sarai. So what's the point of all this? Abraham listened to Sarai. He takes Hagar as a wife, and he gets her pregnant. As soon as Hagar conceives, she looks with contempt at at her mistress, and she becomes prideful. All these years, she's been the servant to a barren woman, and in one try, she's pregnant, and her mistress is not. As you can imagine, this creates a second problem. It doesn't solve the problem. It creates more problems. Arrogance turns into bitter, jealous rivalry. Sarah, Sarah blames Abram, you wronged me. Abram is certainly not innocent, right? But she also overlooks her own guilt in the situation. She's unwilling to take blame for her part. She thrusts it all on him. Now, we never do that in conflict, do we? Uh, you've never been in a conflict with someone and had some blame in it, and, but, but put all the blame on the other person before, right? Neither have I. I'm glad we figured that out. So here's Abram's solution to the second problem. And do whatever you wish. She's your servant. Do whatever you wish. She's your servant. Now, now, now wait a second. Think about this. I want you to get the full weight of this because I missed it the first time I read the passage. On the face, this is some pretty mean apathy, right? Do whatever you want. She's your servant. I don't care what you do with her. But think about it. Hagar had become Abram's wife. She was not just the servant anymore. She was his wife. And he says, eh, do whatever you want. Get out of my hair. And so Sarai abuses the power of her position, deals harshly with Hagar, and Hagar flees. In the end, we've solved no problems. Sarai is still barren. Not only that, but the child Abram did conceive is in the womb of a woman who has fled from the family. And it doesn't solve any of the relational tensions between the two of them. Fleeing is much different than solving. And so what we have is a huge mess. Tons of conflict, lots of hurt people. And the worst part is that none of it brings glory to God, the God who's promised so much to them. So you want to make a mess. Let me give you four options. I want to give you four options for how to make a mess in your life, how to make a mess in your family, how to make a mess especially in the church. This isn't going to be an exhaustive list, but it's going to hit on a few points in the story. Any of these will work, but I tell you what, if you want to really make a mess, put a few of them together. That's when you really start stirring something good up, right? Or bad. So here's your options. Option one, pursue your heart idols rather than trusting God. Pursue your heart idols rather than trusting God. Was Sarai really concerned with the fulfillment of God's promise of offspring to Abram, or was she just concerned with the fact that she was barren? And that was looked poorly on. She felt like God had let her down by preventing her from having a child. You know, we're really good at making our heart, heart idols look super righteous, like righteous endeavors in order to cover up what's really going on, which is a lack of trust in God. You want to know what your heart idol is? You say, well, Cody, I don't think I've got any heart idols. I don't know what you're talking about. You want to know what the, ruling, the real ruling passion is for your life? Here's, how, here, here's some questions you can ask yourself. 
to help dis- discern what it is. First, what would I sin to get? What is it that you want so bad that you are willing to sin to get it, that you're willing to disobey something God clearly commands in order to obtain that thing, that you're willing to justify sin to get that thing? What are you willing to sin to get? Second question, what would cause you to sin if you didn't get it? What's that thing that you want so bad that that if you don't get it, your response is sinful? Tell you what, you ask those two questions, if you really honestly ask yourself those two questions, you'll get yourself in the ballpark at least. You ask yourself those questions and you, you'll get yourself in the ballpark. You go, man, why do I respond to my children with anger and yelling that, that I know is sinful when they don't do this? You're touching on a heart idol. And then the question you got to ask yourself then is why? 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 Then you'll start getting at it. So option one, pursue your heart idols rather than trust God. Option two, justify ignoring God's design for marriage and sex. I tell you what, our world today kind of rolls its eyes. Oh, Christians talking about marriage and sex again all the time, all the time, all the time. Well, well, that might be because in the Bible, that's where we keep screwing it up. Right? I mean, it's all over. It's all over in God's word. It's all over in our lives. It is, it is an absolute wrecking ball. Sarai trying to have a child through Hagar seems wild to us. But I want you to, want, to ask yourself this. Does it seem wild to you because it so clearly denies God's design from Genesis 2? Or does it seem wild to you because it flies in the face of our cultural moment? That's the question you need to ask yourself. Because at any time in human history, we are going to get some things right and some things wrong, but God's word is always right. And so the standard that we have to abide by, no matter what the world says out there is right or wrong, is God's word. That is the only unchanging standard. The culture will change. And we're seeing this. We're seeing it change so quickly right underneath of us. You can't hardly keep up with it. You see, the key word for today's sexual ethic is consent, is it not? Not that consent is a bad thing. It's just not the standard. It's not the standard we see in God's word. And this story, it disturbs us when we think that Hagar might not be consenting. And it should disturb us for that reason. But it should disturb us foundationally because it breaks God's design and falls short of God's sexual ethic. If the attitude about consent changes, it shouldn't change how we feel about what Abram did. It shouldn't change it. Christians are rightly horrified by things like rape and human sex trafficking, etc., And we should be. But if you ask them why, 
Oftentimes, they will use consent as the foundational principle. And that is the way the world thinks and not the way the church thinks. And it's a huge mistake. Because the idea of consent can change, but God's word doesn't. It's no better than my pastor growing up who excused his affair by saying, well, they're in love with each other and they want to be together. And so God must, that must be God's will. Because why would he make them love each other like that? If God is love, then love can't be love if it's contrary to God's character. It's contrary to God's design. We must found these judgments on God's word. Or we will come to God's word and miss much of what God has for us. That being said, I want you to understand that the Bible is not okay with sexual unfaithfulness. It's not okay with polygamy. It's not okay with those things. And when you read God's word, you see very clearly that it illustrates the consequences of disobeying God's design for marriage and sex. It's true, Genesis actually presents a very different view of sex and marriage that probably was quite shocking even to the ancient world. Actually, I will say it would be quite shocking to the ancient world. As shocking as it is to our modern mindset, just maybe in some different ways. Genesis 2 clearly presented that one man and one woman are to be joined together, consummated in marriage through sex, as important even as being fruitful and multiplying is in the Bible, the Bible differed from the ancient world in that marital faithfulness was more important. Because it was God's design. Rather than finding our, your own way to have kids, you were to obey God's command of monogamy and trust him with fertility. Throughout the Genesis account, when we encounter anything outside of God's design for marriage and sex, we will see terrible consequences. We have seen it, and we will continue to see it as we go through Genesis. Okay. So option two is, is uh, a really effective option for creating a mess. Option three. Men, be passive. Women, encourage male passivity. The mess, it isn't amplified by patriarchy. It's amplified by male passivity. Now, that's not to say that there aren't examples in the Bible of men being abusive and domineering and there being clear consequences or that that's okay in any way. In fact, we see Sarai actually being the one who's abusive and domineering, and there are horrible consequences. It is not okay. However, in this situation, when given the opportunity to lead his wife spiritually, to show her what it looks like to trust God, to call her to do the same, to call out the sin in her life and lead her towards sanctification rather than speaking God's truth to her, Abram rolls over and says, do whatever you want. Then after that goes south and she blames him for it, what does he do? Rather than leading again, rather than leading them to deal with the sins that they have committed, do what's right, rather than stepping up and saying, she's my wife now, as unfortunate as that is, and this is what we're going to do about it, he can't be bothered with doing that hard work. Do whatever you want. She's your servant. 
He refuses to take responsibility and he relegates it to his wife instead. Responsibility that he ought to have carried. So you want to create a mess, run your family like this. Men, don't take up the responsibility God has given you as husbands and as fathers, but leave that to your wives. Women, blame your husbands for everything, even your part, and do whatever you want. It's a good way to create a mess. Option four. Option four is wonderful because option four is like a multiplier. It's like take whatever problems you've created and throw this in there and it's going to multiply the mess. Insert pride, the more the merrier. Pride is a multiplier. Hagar responds to the situation with pride and Sarai taking up uh, her more powerful position in, again, pride and arrogance throws it right back. Abram saying, it's in your power to do what you want. Doesn't help the situation. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Am I right? Their sinful solution is like saying, well, two wrongs might make a right. This is how it goes in our messes as well, right? Someone sins. They hurt someone else even if they know that they screwed up, then they respond back and that person sins back against them and then pride starts jumping in. How dare you do that to me or how whatever and then it just kind of keeps going back and forth and no one has, no one has the humility to say, you know what, I'll own my part of that. I screwed that up. Because if you own your part, then it feels like you're allowing the other person to win. And so pride keeps the cycle spinning. Inevitably, this leads us to act in ways that preserve self rather than do what glorifies God and pleases him and benefits the relationship. So that's how we make a mess. And I know I was a little bit facetious in my presentation, purposefully, I hope. You understand that. But let's look at how God works in the mess. That's the bad news. Let's look at the good news, right? What do we do now? First thing is this. We got to start with what's true before we look at what to do. That's my way of making a little rhyme. Hopefully it sticks in your brain. The truest thing in this situation or in any situation is God's character, not your circumstances. That's what I want you to understand. The truest thing, the most real thing in any situation is God's character, the character of the eternal, ever-existing, omnipresent, omnipotent God is the truest thing, not your temporary circumstances. As Big as those feel, and I understand that when you're in a mess, it feels massive. It feels like a hole. I've been in some messes, but I want you to understand, even still, God's character is the truest thing. The most critical piece of what I want you to see in verses 7 through 16, the thing that really, all of it spins around, are the names. Did you see that? Did you notice that in verses 7 through 16? The names. There are three names that matter in those verses. I don't know if you notice this, but in the first six verses, the narrator 
talks about Hagar by name. But Abram and Sarai never call her by her name. Her, the servant. They never call her by her name. But what does the angel of the Lord do? First thing, Hagar. Hagar. Then, after promising Hagar a multitude of offspring, the angel gives this prophecy and names Hagar's son Ishmael. You know what Ishmael means? God hears. God hears. He's not just close, but he hears her affliction. And then Hagar, what does he, Hagar call God? El Roy, the God of seeing. That's what that means. He looks after her. She's seen him. Listen, if you've been hurt by the church, if you've been in conflict with other believers, if you've ever run away from being a part of a community because of those conflicts, I want to start by saying this. God knows you. He knows what happened. He knows how you feel. He hasn't forgotten. He knows you. And God hears. He hasn't turned a deaf ear to you. He knows your affliction. He knows your pain. He hears your prayers. And God sees. He looks after his people. And he will reveal himself to them in the right time. God knows. God hears. God sees. That's the truth we have to start with before we do anything else. The truth about who God is. Because if we skip that step, if we do not first see who God is, we will inevitably do something we ought not to do. That's what Abram and Sarah had forgotten in the first part of the story. The second piece is this stop running. Stop running. Fleeing and running. Is, not, is very different from solving problems. Hagar flees, and the angel asks, where have you come from and where are you going? And, he, and then tells her to return and to submit, right? Running from community to community, from church to church, whenever there is a conflict or whenever someone hurts you, it, it doesn't work. You want to know why it doesn't work? Because wherever you go, there you are. I know that's not what you want to hear but it's the truth. And you're part of the problem. And wherever you go, you'll be there. And the same kind of problems will happen again. Typically. I'm sure there are exceptions to that rule. Just as Hagar's pride is part of the problem in returning and submitting is actually just the thing that she needs for God to sanctify that pride. God doesn't want his people to sin. I want you to understand that. He doesn't want his people to sin. But knowing that they will, he's found a way to use it to reveal his grace and to make his church more holy. The sinfulness of other people often reveals the sinfulness in my own heart. So that I can deal with it. So that I can apply the gospel to it. So that I can grow in holiness. 
And someone else in the church, someone else in the body of Christ may be blind to their sinfulness in some area until it hurts you. And then the question is, what are you going to do with it? Because if you run, you miss the opportunity for them to see their sinfulness. You miss the opportunity for God to use that obstacle to sanctify them. Because you'd rather not deal with it. Because it's inconvenient. And it is. It is inconvenient. But what if God wants more there? See, being committed to a church family will inevitably result in my rough edges rubbing against your rough edges. And we all have rough edges, right? Can I get an amen? Anyone, anyone got rough edges in this room? I, I Ruffles rough ridges, and I'm very roughly. That's the truth. And it hurts. It hurts when that happens, does it not? Man, I'm not going to lessen that at all. It really hurts. But with the gospel working between us, we can actually help to refine each other's edges. God uses that to smooth those out. And when we bear with one another, and when we forgive one another, and when we love one another anyway, it's a testimony to the grace of God at work in us and in the world. And it's a testimony to the world. Because the world runs. That's what the world does. The world runs, hides behind a cell phone and a Twitter account. That's what the world does. But God's people... They do something different. They lock arms. And they strive to work through it. The question really does come down to this. Which do you desire more, Christ-likeness or comfort? Which do you desire more for yourself? And which do you desire more for your fellow believer, Christ-likeness or comfort? And now that's not to say, and, and, and I will give this little qualification, that's not to say there's never a reason to leave a church. There is. When a church is preaching a different gospel, when it's unwilling to deal with clear and repeated sin, when the leadership refuses to repent, there are reasons, that's a sermon for another day, there are reasons to leave a church. But what I am saying is this, it's much, much less often than we think. And it's not merely to avoid an inconvenient or uncomfortable relational situation. So how does God work in the mess? He reveals who he is in ways we may not be able to see outside of the mess. He sanctifies us as we stay in community and do the hard work of working through conflict in our own sin. But one last way that God works, and I couldn't find a shorter way to say this, so I'm sorry. He promises good for those who trust him, but he doesn't promise freedom from consequences. This is an important thing for us to remember. He promises good for those who trust him, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be consequences for our sin. If there's one thing I know for sure, when you find yourself in one of these messes, God will ask you to do something that in your mind, you will not immediately understand how this is going to work out. And you certainly are not going to understand how it's going to be a benefit to you. Because that's what God does. Are you going to trust him or are you not going to trust him? And so he promises to Hagar that she is going to have numerous offspring. As crummy as this situation is, he says, submit. I know it's a bad situation. Go back. 
And I promise you are going to have numerous offspring. Far more than you could ever imagine. However, that doesn't negate the reality of the sin and its consequences. And so what we see is Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey of a man. And that means what you think it means. Okay? The KJV has a good translation on this verse, and you can read it later. His hand will be against everyone and everyone against him. But he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He will live an independent life, free, too free, actually. He will live out what his mother is attempting to do in this moment, and God says, no, go back. He will live in arrogance and in conflict with others, just like Hagar is arrogant and in conflict with her mistress. You see, even though we ought to expect messes, even among God's people, and even though God is faithful to use the messes we create and turn them for good for his people, it's still better if they never happen because there's going to be consequences. And consequences for us, and, and listen, parents, it's true for, for Hagar here, and I think it's really true for us. There's consequences for our kids, right? Our sin has consequences for our children. And that's hard, hard reality for us who are parents to wrestle with. Too often, when we fail as parents to work through our messes appropriately, our children pay the price and carry a burden for that sin. And that reality can feel absolutely crushing. But then, but then we're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded that there was a father who never sinned, who is perfectly holy, and yet sent his son into our mess to carry the burden for our sin, to take it on himself, to reveal his character through his works in the midst of our mess in a way that could not have been revealed any other way. See, even when God's people make sinful messes, and we all do, we all do, but we did before Christ redeemed us, and we still wrestle with indwelling sin today, yet God can be trusted, because in the middle of all of that, God loves and saves rebel sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Amen? So the question is this, will you trust him? Will you trust him? Let's pray. Lord,